0: here with Sandra Newman, and this is Lit Century, our podcast where we talk about one book for each year of the 20th century. Today we're continuing our conversation with Tyrese Coleman about Gloria Naylor's Women of Brewster Place from 1982. Tyrese is the author of How to Sit, which was nominated for a Penn Open Book Award. Her work has also appeared as a notable in Best American Essays in 2018 and 2016, as well as being nominated for a Pushcart Prize. The book we're discussing, The Women of Brewster Place, is a novel in stories, but the, there are two that we're discussing in particular today, um, the first and the last ones. In the first one, a single mother, Maddie, uh, slowly earns the money to pay for the house where she raises her son, and then when he's a young man, she posts it as bail when he's arrested after a bar fight, and he runs away and she loses the house. The last story is about a woman, Lorraine, whose partner is also a woman, and um, Lorraine is good friends with Ben, who's an old man who... Uh, lives at Brewster Place and um, she's raped by a gang of men who want to punish her for lesbianism. And um, when Ben tries to help her, she doesn't see that he's not another attacker and she kills him with a brick. Uh, So with that, here's the rest of our conversation with Tyrese.
1: Yeah, it's just making me think that I think that this book well, there, there are two things about it. One is that in a much more kind of implicit way, but very similar to a lot of Toni Morrison's books, it's talking about the devastation of the African-American family. And so, I mean, that like that, that ending, well, really not exactly the ending, but the climax with Lorraine and Ben and their relationship and her rape and how that leads to her actually killing Ben. And he becomes the scapegoat for all of the the violence that in the book, black men are visiting on black women. But that's also like coming right after the first time that we actually have a white character who appears on stage, which is in Ben's flashbacks to how his daughter was raped. Mm -hmm. So that, I mean, that's like a really powerful like knot of symbols at the end of the book, which kind of gives you a key to everything that's happening in the rest of the book, I think. And that goes to the heart of where that sort of bonding is coming from in in the women in the street.
0: Well, and one more element of that picture, Sandy, that I think fits in with it is that the climax just beyond that part is that they physically unbuild the house with their hands and that the house was built as sort of an as a mistake, almost by white
1: people for white people and or it's the it's actually the wall um yeah, the wall it's it so the just, wall is actually like cutting the the street off from um i guess from being able to
2: yeah, there's like a traffic flow boulevard kind of thing that they put up,
1: yeah
0: mm-hmm. I, it, it that sounds the that- A lot of the book is about sort of these bonds and the things like that they can take so much of their effort and build, say, a son, and then the son turns around and betrays them as soon as he's a man. Um, Like there's so much effort that's constantly being squandered by other people's carelessness and hostility and just violence. It seems like what they're doing is building something in this place, but it's interesting that where they actually end up is by taking something apart hmm
2: yeah I mean I, it, and you're I mean to go off on another sort of uh point <laughs> I was yeah, hoping to yeah. build off of what you were saying but like um it's it's funny to me how like and I'm just thinking about how even when Ben is sort of like has been I don't know if he's been built up as like um definitely not an ideal but uh, a more sympathetic male character it almost feels like there's like a like a a a stopping point at which any any male character in this book can receive uh a happy ending in our eyes as the reader (laughs) right Mm -hmm. so I'm not saying that like there is a happy ending but in terms of like You know, every single male character that we've seen in this book has created some sort of devastation on a female character in this book or a female in their lives. And in the moment where Ben is sort of working symbolically almost to maybe redeem a little bit of that he's dead. He's killed. And I don't know what that, and I don't know what that means. <laughs> I mean, I, I think if I had more time to ruminate on it, I, I could come up with something, but um, I I feel like it's very, you know, this world of um, it's almost as if the women of Rooster Place are like that wall is, is men in general. And it's like, like we have to like beat down, this wall to like make ourselves who we are and in order to do that we have to kind of kill off the men I don't know that sounds terrible (laughs) but like (laughs) but but there's no I can't think of any other character any male character in this book that is redeemable in some way and then once that happens once some sort of redeemability occurs he's dead so I interpreted that
0: in a, in almost the opposite way, but I also think that your reading is probably, I think that they're they're very linked, let's just say.
1: Mm-hmm. Um,
0: because I was thinking a lot of characters die, like uh, Lucilia's baby dies, her toddler, and there's there's death all around, and the stakes mm-hmm. are incredibly high. Um, but the book only kind of stops. And it's only an actual climax for the community when it's a man that dies. Um, And I I was thinking it's kind of that they each have these private, deep, deep sufferings of what's been taken from them with all of these just horrible things that happen in every single person's life. And then they have their immediate friends that are there, but it's only when Ben dies that everyone kind of has this community action of, of grief and pain together, of, of unbuilding this wall. And so I was I was right on the, I don't know. It's like, it's simultaneously is like the men are completely irredeemable and, and have to be thrown out. And also, um, that it's still a man's death that everyone can consider most important?
1: Hmm. I don't know if I saw it that way exactly. I mean, one of the things that I thought was most impressive and also like strange in the way that books written in a different time are strange was that uh, it was so unapologetic about holding men to account and just blaming them for the bad things that they had done. And not, not immediately jumping to seeing their point of view and showing how. I mean, it it definitely showed how life was painful for the men too, and this was not coming out of a vacuum. But we're, we're absolutely. Um, I, I think that the idea of of Ben as being the wall and being able to turn on a man and. Actually, attack him physically. Being rendered as tearing down the wall feels like it's true to the book, in a way. And and it's like the the book is so kind of now the the word that springs to mind is ballsy, which is absolutely the worst word, obviously, in this context. But. What, we could say gutsy, maybe. Yeah, it's just so, it's wild, you know, it's just willing to go there. And there's there's one sentence, there's actually a couple of sentences that I'd like to read, but this one, this one keeps getting me and I just want to read it over and over again. It's when Etta May comes to Brewster Place. The apple green Cadillac with the white vinyl roof and Florida plates turned into Brewster like a greased cobra. <laughs> and that really is just like, like a greased cobra. <laughs> it's just like, you like can a real, see
2: it slithering. Like, yeah. Yeah. That. It's like,
1: take no prisoners, you know, like that. The sentence is not fucking around. Yeah. And I really love that about the book. It just, it just goes there. And sometimes it goes there and then it goes farther and then it goes even farther. And yeah. and you kind of stand back from, from it. And you're like, whoa, <laughs> Mm-hmm. Did not see that.
2: <laughs> and I and I think it does that the most when we're talking about the, the processing of time. Like there's a bunch of places throughout the book where you're in one particular part of time. And then by the end of the paragraph, you're in a completely different place. You're in a completely different part of, of like time in the world. And like years have passed in the span of like, five sentences and then you're just Mm -hmm. moving on to the next phase of this character's life and i noticed that i that's one of the things that i admired the most when i first read this because um in that first section with maddie there's a paragraph where her son is five and he's sitting at the table at the kitchen table and she's feeding him and then you know sentence 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 by the end of the paragraph he's a grown man sitting at the table and she's feeding him (laughs) and nothing has changed in terms of like their relationship he's still a child in her eyes but he's yet he's a grown man and just the fact that like one nothing in terms of their relationship has changed uh from five to when he's i'm assuming maybe like 25 or something like that we don't really know his age but um but also the way, like the, the smooth way that she went from that time period to the next time period, all in that sentence was just something when I first read, I was just like, oh, my God, you can actually do that. Like, can you really do that? Like in one paragraph, it's like I can create a whole new story that way. So I don't know. I I and mm. yeah. So I agree with you.
0: <laughs> I remember that paragraph. I remember that it 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 shows the the growth of the child with the length of his legs in relation to the chair. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I I think that you're absolutely right that it shows how much um, the relationship does not change between the mother and the son, and mm-hmm. how much mm-hmm. he is very childlike even as a man in terms of how much he's sort of consuming her as a resource Um, and that that feels like love to him but there's still that that childlikeness about expecting protection sort of without cost to himself
2: yeah I have to say that Maddie's story was the one I mean granted there's so many traumatic things that happen it's almost like I I feel like you know, all the other traumas are, like, traumas. But what happens with Maddie and her son makes me the most angry. (laughs) Out of all the other stories in the book, I just, like, want to, like, if he was a real-life person, he is the character that I would want to, like, shake and, like, hurl through a window. I mean, Cece is Cece, and he does terrible things. And I'm not saying that anything else that happens in the book isn't also, you know, bad. But, his emotional, the, the way that he is just so ungrateful, and maybe it's because I'm a mother and I just think to myself, like, I would lose my mind. <laughs> like, my, my, like my, my child would just have to be in jail. He would just have to be in jail. And that's just what would happen. I just felt like, I just, I don't know, he just drove me the most crazy. But it really sets a a a stage, you know, for for that whole male-female dynamic for the rest of the book, but yeah. It does, but it also, I
0: wanted to connect that to what Sandy said earlier about um, there are very, I mean, there's like maybe only one white character, I'm thinking, but except there's this idea that he's not going to get a fair trial and that he doesn't have any reason to expect to get a fair trial, which is why he sort of, you know, just to tell listeners who may not have just read the book like we did, um, that she posts the house that she worked like her entire adult life to, to own this house. And she raised her child in this house. And it means so much to everyone. This house does. And um, he, she gets him out of jail uh, post uh, the house as bail. And then he does not return for the trial because he, she's saying you're going to get off. They're not going to, they're not going to um, punish you. Um, and the lawyer says that you'll be safe if you stand trial. And he says, um, I can't risk it. I'm not going to jail. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so she never sees him again. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. yeah. And loses the house and is an old woman with nothing except her bonds with other women. Um, Mm -hmm. and it's, As you said, it's just devastating. But also, even as I was reading her part of that, I was thinking it it does feel a little naive to think that he would be safe, even if some lawyer is saying like, oh, yeah, 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 we'll get him off. Sure, it'll be fine. It's like that is a way that um, the external society that's not just these male-female dynamics um, is Causing these ruptures inside the most intimate bonds, yeah, of, of I, relationships.
2: Yeah, I totally agree. And I mean, and it's also irrelevant because we don't know whether or not he did the crime, but it's completely irrelevant whether he did it or not. Yeah. Um, and either way, I mean, his, I mean, he he flew the coop. He was a coward, also. <laughs> Um, but in a lot of ways, uh, Maddie allowed this to happen as well, and um, and these external factors with the, with society at large, you know, um, that that plays into it. But also, I think the book is commenting on the fact that yes, these external factors do happen, these are things that, you know, society has, these are constraints that society has put on a Black person. Um, you know, uh, the the price you pay for being born Black, right? But that you also have self-control, self-autonomy, will, the, the responsibility to act accordingly, and that you can't just behave in a certain way and expect something um, and expect a certain outcome. Um, and so I like, so I, I see that those two things happening, especially with Maddie's story um, because she, you know, Miss Eva told her you're babying that boy yeah. and yet she continued to baby him. And so her, her actions as a mother and even goes back to the way that she was brought up too, because she was babied as a, as a, child by her father so it's all it's all these behaviors that are in play together in tandem like you're already set up by you know the white judicial system and and the white and white society at large but at the same time you have to know you have to still be responsible for yourself um
0: yeah. But the other side of when Maddie is taking responsibility for other people, it's so much smaller and so much more gentle and really lovely. Um, it's not these big moments like, um, you know, barroom brawl and a murder trial and anything like that. It's these little yeah. moments like when she stays up late waiting for her friend to come home after a bad date and she holds Lucilia after, you know, and Lucy is really grieving and it's those moments of presence in other people's lives that it's not her being sort of more authoritarian with her son or, you know, it's not like in opposition to babying it's um, Mm -hmm. it's just sort of being there with other people with Mm -hmm. their feelings and not sort of escaping.
2: Um, I don't know. I, I always have read that, that section and just wanted to, I mean, not just wanting to shake Basil, but also wanting to be like Maddie
1: wake up yeah I I have to say I felt the same way and and you do like there is this discomfort about I or I had a discomfort about feeling that way because of that consciousness that he was not going to get a fair trial but but at the same time he I mean his attitude is is so reprehensible and and so childish that it's it's hard not to want to shake him
2: In order to refresh my memory, I did watch the miniseries again,
1: which is
2: which I highly recommend if you've never seen it.
0: I haven't seen it. I was tempted to watch it for this uh, for this episode, but it just didn't work out with time. Um, But, um, yeah, there's something very cinematic about all these stories. You can really see how um, she's really setting you up for a miniseries in a great way.
2: Oh yeah, and and Jack K. Harry as oh, yeah. Etta is like the best thing ever. Like she's <laughs> she's fantastic. Um, she's absolutely my favorite character in the whole book. So
0: I love that. Um, I will I will watch that definitely. Any any more thoughts, Sandy?
1: Um, I don't really have thoughts. I was I was. <laughs> Do you mind if I read a section, though? And then you can cut it out if you don't want to keep it. But sure, no. This is just like another of the like really, really wild Baroque things, and it's it's what we were talking about before. Of Maddie comforting Seal after Seal, Seal's child dies, and and Seal seems like she's not going to be brought back from her grief, and Maddie goes and sits with her. And somewhere from the bowels of her being came a moan from Seal, so high at first it couldn't be heard by anyone there, but the yard dogs began an unholy howling, and Maddie rocked. And then, agonizingly slow, it broke its way through the parched lips in a spaghetti-thin column of air that could be faintly heard in the frozen room. Seal moaned, Maddie rocked. Propelled by the sound, Maddie rocked her out of that bed, out of that room, into a blue vastness, just underneath the sun and above time. She rocked her over Aegean seas, so clean they shone like crystal, so clear the fresh blood of sacrificed babies torn from their mother's arms and given to Neptune could be seen like pink froth on the water. She rocked her on and on past Dachau where soul gutted Jewish mothers swept their children's entrails off laboratory floors. They flew past the spilled brains of Senegalese infants Whose mothers had dashed them on the wooden sides of slave ships, and she rocked on. And that's that's just one of those sections that that is like you you think that it's gone as far as it possibly can go, and then it just goes farther and farther and creates this whole elaborate cosmos around that moment of pain.
2: Yeah, you really understand the isn't that representative? Yeah. I mean, isn't that representative of that that level of grief of that motherly grief? Yeah. that's Like ancient. It's so yeah. ancient that it just goes like beyond the depths of like sort like it's just too. it's so like you have to like I, I respect the fact that she just kept on going and going and going because there really is no end to it. There will never be an end to like a mother's grief, my yeah. grief or any mother's grief, you know?
1: Yeah. And it's like the opposite solution to that Hemingway solution where you just like have the person like walk away without saying anything um, right. you know, with a manly face. And, and here it's like how do you it's like two different strategies. How do you represent that degree of pain? How do you represent the most extreme pain that you can imagine? And here she's just she's like really engaging with it and trying to represent it and trying to talk about it. Well, and it's also connected to other people, which is, uh,
0: like, I think probably the center of this book is yeah. the idea that people bearing witness to one another's pain is sort of the heart of the human experience, but especially the heart of the Black female experience. And um, and the the strength of and the joy of their lives is also in in there.
2: In, mm-hmm.
0: they're telling a story that's bigger than just these particular women.
2: Yeah, it's just it's not about you necessarily. It's about uh the fact that yes, you are feeling this but other people have felt it and other people will feel it. And I don't know, it, it's it feels so and almost um so grand in a way that it's it's untouchable um and I think that's what I was what I felt like you know as you were reading that like it feels so like how do you even express this the only way to express this is through talking about you know all these different people and universes and and things of that nature and and there's really no other way to make it make sense
1: yeah absolutely and it is exactly like that the female point of view on history that like as you were saying about um, the literature that came before this wave of literature, like men writing about women, it was just completely invisible to them how how women and children were affected by history, like how these historical events that are represented in that one like scream of the brief mother actually are felt by most of the people in the world. Mm
2: -hmm. Um,
1: Yeah. It also, I think is, I mean, just
0: to another book that we talked about on the podcast is uh, Nella Larson's um, Passing and her feeling about bourgeois black society and women in particular is seeing how, just like what a bunch of assholes they are and how much they are not, able to connect to this because they're caught between respectability on the one hand and uh, racism on the other, and all the various layers of sexism and misogyny that they are bearing inside themselves, that they're not, I mean, it's a whole book about not this, Uh how much they're not able to connect, Mm -hmm. how much they're not able to envision anything other than their own world and circumstances and that's the end of our second episode on the women of Brewster Place thank you to Tyrese Coleman and to Adam Bear for our music as well as to everyone at LitHub for hosting us we also have an announcement today Sandy is going on semi-hiatus from the podcast while she works on her new novel Filling in for her, we'll have Elisa Gabbard and Isaac Butler uh, doing some co-hosting with me. And since we're not entirely losing Sandy, even temporarily, I think that we'll uh, be able to bring you some really good episodes coming up uh, and some good guests. So as always, um, please write to us at LitCenturyPod on Twitter or at LitCenturyPodcast at gmail.com and goodbye to next week.